Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of 2 Kings. We begin with an invocation and prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we are in the death throes of Israel. The ten northern tribes are quickly coming to their demise here in Second Kings. Now, we left off on chapter 16. We'll begin chapter 16 here of Second Kings in just a moment. Uh, to recap what the preceding chapters were about, we're, of course, tr- simply tracing the kings in the north and the kings in the south. And almost without exception, they're all rotten. So we see that over and over and over again. We reflect then on, again, in terms of, in terms of when we get to the New Testament and we're seeing the language of Antichrist, we're reminded that Christ is an anointed one. Uh, an anointed one who is anti the true Christ, the true anointed one, our Lord Jesus Christ, the true messianic king, son of David. Uh, So in all of these false kings, leading people in the way of idolatry, leading them in the way of false gods and false worship, we see them in antithesis to our Lord Jesus Christ, who leads us in the way of true worship, the one true God, and receiving him in his sacraments and in the religion and worship that Yahweh himself has instituted. So we have this in our backdrop that this is kind of a blueprint of Antichrist and of of the Antichrist, of all that will be in opposition to our Lord Jesus. And then we're going to see, um, we're going to see some gray areas in this text as we've seen, no doubt about it. We're going to see how, how evil sometimes is so great it even puts good a good king, good people in a compromising situation. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to see then also, I think, as I was reading through this section in preparation for this class, we're going to see some things that resonate with our own culture and our own way and how I, I think there are archetypes and templates of what it means to turn after and follow false gods and the inevitable pain, demise, and turmoil uh, that follow nations that, that do this. So we'll go ahead and, and take a look at these themes as we progress on through the coming chapters. But let's simply pick up at chapter 16, verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, of course, that's what's going on. Uh, Pekah is the king up in the north at this time. Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now, two things, of course. Um, He is always compared to David. And in David, we see a type and foreshadowing of the Messiah, because it is the son of David who will come and fulfill all of God's promises. And obviously, over and against this template that David gives, this particular king, Ahaz, falls short. Not only in falling short of David, but then also in walking in the way of the kings of Israel, that is in full paganism, and then he takes it to an extreme, as the latter half of verse 3 shows us. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord, Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Well, a few, a few comments to be made here. You know, this is a bizarre practice. Isn't it, isn't it hard to just think of this objectively and not see it as purely demonic? This, that parents, and I, I mean, in any circumstances, right? In any possible circumstance, whether it's our own or these or just any circumstances whatsoever, that, that parents would look at their children and say, it's the right thing to do to kill you. You know, it's completely bizarre. Given, 
there's some interesting things we can think about, and I don't mean to take us on any deep dive here, but there's some interesting themes we should refresh ourselves with, because I think they're a little bit helpful to see in this light. The proclamation of God to the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve is that one would come and crush the serpent's head. In crushing the serpent's head, his heel would be bruised. And so there's going to be suffering, this offspring of the woman, there's going to be suffering. And that gets fleshed out later as time goes on into a full-fledged understanding of death and resurrection. Even in the Old Testament scriptures, we see this. The apostles themselves saw this and relied on these scriptures as their proofs. So this idea of God giving his son, the offspring of the woman, laying down his life, is the oldest religion, is the oldest religion on the face of the earth. So viewed from a demonic angle, what do the demons do? Completely pervert this. God's going to give his son, no, you must give your son. God's going to give his son for you, you must give your son to us. You see a demonic perversion and inversion of this. You, it's just, and there are many more facets to entertain here, but just to keep things very broad, there's a source and a center for this. Now, we find it peculiar when we take out of context that God wanted Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only begotten son. Um, in a pagan context, this is what the de demons are demanding all the time. Sacrifice your children to us. So then when God says, okay, sacrifice your child to me, Abraham knows that he's, he's dealing with the one true God. He knows that God has made promises and specific promises in regard to his son and that Isaac will be the one through whom this promised Savior comes and all the families of the earth are blessed. So Abraham latches hold of these words of God, but he latches hold of the promise that God will certainly raise his son. He goes forward in this action, but then what does God do? He does not have Abraham follow through. In, in effect, he's saying, I am not like the pagan gods. I will not require you to do this but rather I will put my lamb in place of this child sacrifice. And so Isaac is replaced with the ram with his horns caught in the thicket, with this lamb given by God. And then of course prophetically on the mount of the Lord, this mount it shall be provided. Fast forward some 1500 years and on that very mount it is provided when God gives his own son doesn't require the sons of the people, but gives his own son on behalf of the people, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can see here too then in this context, in this pagan context, how it is that God demonstrates that he is not like these gods in his interaction with Abraham and Isaac, and then ultimately the fullness of, of this in Christ Jesus. Okay, so there's, there's many, many things that can be said here in terms of child sacrifice and how this becomes a mark of Antichrist. Because Christ himself is God giving his son for us. Antichrist is us giving our children for the gods. You see? So child sacrifice becomes a sacrament of the Antichrist. Now, that's what we're seeing then in abortion in our country and how, how it is simply just upheld as if it were the principle upon which uh, all other principles stand. And, and it's couched in all this sort of PC language of freedom of choice and freedom of the woman. And, but there are some interesting parallels. Um, I think of one drawn out by a Roman Catholic apologist, Peter Kraft from Boston College. And he has noted the similarity in the language between the Antichrist and the sacrifice of children and the mantra that's, that's my body, my choice. My body, my body. Um, and so I can decide to do what I want with my body and even if that equates to a sacrament of, of death. And he parallels that to Christ in his sacrament saying this is my body. Now, Christ gives his body for the life of the world, for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. Wherever there's forgiveness, there's life and salvation. The woman in saying, this is my body, is doing what? 
causing and justifying death. It's a, it's a statement of, it's a Eucharistic statement, an anti-Eucharist, right? A, this is my body and therefore you will die. Christ says, this is my body and therefore you will live. And so there's some very interesting parallels here. Now, um, whether you like that fine of a point on it or not, zoom back out and it simply cannot be denied that sacrifice of one's children is demonic and is anti-Christ in the strict sense because again of that theology from Genesis chapter 3 forward of God giving his son for us, never requiring us to give our children to him. And so you see demonic apery here and an anti-Christ uh, here at work in this text. Again, when, when the scriptures, when the New Testament scriptures suddenly start speaking about antichrist and antichrist as if, we're, as if we're all supposed to know exactly what this is and what this are, we can't forget that here is our grounding. In the false kings of Israel and Judah, we have our grounding, our biblical Old Testament grounding for the New Testament teaching of what an antichrist is and does. Okay, so we're going to see this theme uh, repeat now as we're in the end stages of Israel. And one of the things we're seeing, of course, we're in Judah right now. We're seeing that Judah is no better than Israel. That Israel uh, receives God's justice. Israel chooses to be a pagan nation. And so God says, fine, you want to be a pagan nation instead of my people? I'll treat you as a pagan nation. Pagan nations get crushed by other pagan nations. So that's what's going to happen. Judah is spared. And one of the points of this text is that Judah is not spared because it outshines Israel. It is not spared because it merits God's mercy and blessing, but rather precisely because God has made the promise to Judah, that promise of Christ, that Christ will come through Judah, through the line of David, and thus God sustains it. Whereas Israel is wiped off forever, Judah, at the climax of their punishment, are merely taken into captivity and then brought back simply because God is a God who keeps his promises. No matter how wicked we are, no matter how much we foul it up, God keeps his promises. And so all of these are major, major themes in this section of the scripture and things that we want to grasp hold of uh, to use to strengthen our faith and guide us. So you're saying um, so much like this is how it is all from, Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation. Yes, I, yeah, okay, so the question is, I'm trying to rephrase, but what we see here are dynamics that can be seen from Genesis all the way through Revelation, absolutely. And this theme of Christ and Antichrist, and um, the, the laying down of one's life for another versus the taking of one's life for, a, you know. Yeah, these kinds of themes are, they're almost like, I use the language of like archetype because they're, they're overarching, they're deep, they show up everywhere, and they give a, a much more objective and much more true point of reference for us and for other cultures, considering things that just seem to pop up. You know, I think if you're not viewing, if you're not viewing abortion in our country through a spiritual lens, you're just seeing it as a, as a natural kind of outcropping of an evolutionary worldview. You might even be seeing it as an act of mercy because we're all born into this place and it's unjust and lousy and so you're sparing this child. You know, you're sparing yourself. You're going to have money to do what you want. You're going to have freedom. You're going to have independence. You know, all these ways that it gets couched and colored and framed in our culture as a good thing. Not... You know, not even a neutral thing, but a good thing, an exercise of one's own choice, of one's own lordship and dominion. When you see that in biblical context, you start to see it for what it really is. Yeah, grounded in these archetypes. And really then is, uh, strictly speaking, I think we make a mistake if we just say, well, it's, a, it's merely a breach of the fifth commandment. It is that, and it isn't especially an egregious, because who more weak than children, yeah. right? And who should parents care for more than their own children, okay? So egregious, but even more so because there's a kind of antichrist aspect to it, um, a purely antichrist aspect that really um, contradicts the nature of the gospel, the structure of the gospel itself. Yeah, because it says children are a blessing, and so God gives us sanctification, and so you're almost taking that blessing that God gives you and burn it up. 
right. don't want yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then the same thing, like you said here, of, you know, they go in captivity, but God's merciful and brings them out of captivity. The same, he's coming for us during the Advent, the second coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well said, well said. And I think we, we sometimes get this sense in the modern, you know, post-enlightenment world that like, well, these are old dark times of pagans and, and then, yeah, none of this exists anymore. Yeah, it does. It exists all around us. We have to, you know, take off, the, peel off the layers of delusion to see what really is. And we see that paganism is alive and well and all around us. And then, and then there's this comfort too, that for those who have fallen into this paganism unawares and maybe have committed these atrocities and sacrifices of their own flesh and blood and they're dealing with this and they're wrestling with this. They have to realize that just as pagans of old could be converted to Yahweh and find the forgiveness of sins, pagans today can be converted and find the forgiveness of their sins. And then that there is a remedy specifically to this. I mean, if, you're, if, if you've committed abortion, if you've had an abortion, that the forgiveness of sins of this, for this anti-sacrament is precisely found in the sacrament. And that that's where you will have forgiveness of sins and organic, holistic healing, receiving the body of the Son of God for the forgiveness of your sins, for the wholeness and restoration of your person. Um, and, and you're by no means some kind of second-class citizen or second-class child of God, but you are fully redeemed and forgiven and holistically healed by our God. So as we're, as we're pointing out the the paganism around us, we want to point out that that isn't more powerful, even when we're swallowed up in it, isn't more powerful than the remedy. We can see it for what it is over and against the remedy, but then we need to recognize that the remedy itself is strong enough to heal even that, and that God has an answer for that. So the more we see ourselves in lines of like pagan (laughs) or Christian, the more we see ourselves in line of antichrist or Christ, demonic or holy, the more clear we're seeing and the less delusion uh, we're being subjected to. Okay, sorry for that little digression, but I think the text warrants it. I think the text elicits it uh, as we're thinking about it and how it applies to us in our time. Okay, So we're told then, latter half of verse 3, he burned his son in an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now there's going to be a bunch of ironies here. Um, And and that is, the ironies are, who did did God set the people free from in order to bring them into this land? Egypt. Who now at the end of all things are they going to turn to? The Lord or? Da-da-da-da, Egypt. (laughs) Okay, and so there are a bunch of like deep, deep ironies, historical but also penned in scripture where it's just like it's meant to sear your brain. Okay, and here's another one. Here's another one. Okay, that now Israel, his people, remember, he frees them from Egypt. He has them purge out all of the, all of the pagan people. The Lord drives them out. Of course, they don't do a perfect job. That's half the reason why they're in the circumstances they are. But they... So in the beginning, God drives out all these people, and then in the end, what are they doing? They themselves are acting just like these people. So there's this symmetry that's going on where the inclusio, the, the, the bookends, is freed from Egypt, begging for Egypt's help. Okay? God drives out the people for their paganism. Israel's doing that very paganism. You see what's happening here in terms of the story arc? It's bitterly ironic. All right, verse 4, And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills under every green tree. So like if it's idolatry, he's pretty into it. That's Ahaz. He's for it. Verse 5, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. Now what a tragic moment this is because not only is it civil war, which we've seen time and time again, brother against brother, but now it also involves a pagan nation. So Israel in the north is grasped hold of uh, the king of Syria. So now it's Syria and Israel attacking Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz but could not conquer him. It's somewhat remarkable, actually, uh, because 
the North and Syria are quite a bit more sizable and substantive. Verse 6, at that time Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileazar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Oh! Oh! Who, who is he the servant of? Who is he the son of? God. I mean, that's what, that's what the king of Judah is supposed to be, the, the servant of God, the son of God. And does he turn to Yahweh? Does he turn to God? No. He turns to Ahaz of Assyria. I am your servant and your son. I mean, again, just bitterly, brutally ironic. It's interesting, uh, you know, you can conceive of this a number of different ways in terms of typology and mode, but the king of Assyria functions as a satanic character whom God sends to enact justice, God's justice, and he never steps outside of God's bound, but Assyria is a kind of satanic figure, and here Ahaz, king of Judah, is turning to him rather than to the true God. It is, uh, of course, Assyria who's about to sweep away the north, and you have the south turning to him and pandering in this way. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. I mean, here you just have absolute degradation. So the breakdown of all things, because you have not only civil war but that between God's people, but then Israel grabbing a hold of Syria and Judah grabbing a hold of Assyria. Just, I mean, what's, how can you, they're all pagan. It's just all pagan at this point. That's just all it is. So we are absolutely, like as we've been swirling the drain, we are reaching that singularity where you go, you go right through. All right, verse 8, Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord. No need for this. The Lord can't help us. Just take his stuff and give it to the king of Assyria. And in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus. Uh, that's the capital of Syria. And took it carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. Rezin was the king of Syria, of course. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileazar, the king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. This is terrible. This is just, I mean, this begins just such a terrible section. If you weren't depressed before, you might be depressed after this. Um, check out the study note on verse 10. Okay, Damascus, capital of Syria, we got that. Lay across the conqueror's path into Israel. Okay, Tiglath-Pileazar therefore marched up against Damascus and took it before he overran Israel. Ten years later, Israel's capital, Samaria, would be captured by the Assyrians. Okay, so that gives us a sense for where we are. And then what about this model of the altar and all this business we're about to get into? It's about to depress us. After receiving aid from Tiglath-Pileazar in his struggle against the kings of Israel and Syria, Ahaz also had an Assyrian altar erected where? Oh, in the Jerusalem temple. Oh, Ahaz manifested abject submission to Tiglath-Pileazar by giving the worship of the Assyrian idol a place in the Jerusalem temple. All right, as I said, we're at the, we're at the depths here. So, um, verse 11 is where we left off. Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. I mean, look at this. Look at this. So uh, the, uh, the Assyrian king is their god. 
and this is his this is his altar i mean this is this is demonic and antichrist type stuff going on here no doubt about it verse 12 and when the king came from damascus the king viewed the altar then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offerings and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar i looked for this in the study note there isn't one simply didn't have time to research it further the language here uh, maybe the vicar can correct us if he knows but the language here seems to me to indicate that he took the sacrifices due to yahweh and gave them to this false god and so it you know again just particularly stunning uh, idolatry here verse 14 and the bronze altar that was before the lord he removed from the front of the house. Can you imagine doing this? Can you imagine doing this? You know, in our own days, and I, I don't think it's anywhere near this. I don't think it's anywhere near what this actually is and is actually doing. But it is tangential. And um, I cannot help but find a parallel in our own times of the emptying of our churches of anything that has to do with Christ and the replacing of it of simply just worldly carnal things down with the crucifix up with the light show down with the baptismal font up with the drums away with the altar put in the smoke machine um, and so forth there's even if it's not just the sheer crass brazen idolatry that we see here it's kind of a a, a distant type of it isn't it it's a uh, taking away the things of the Lord and putting in the things of pagan culture. Please. Was there a, was there a comment or question in the back? No? Okay. Just, just a handoff just of a the hand mic. Just a of the microphone. All right. Uh, we do have one up here. All right. Thanks, Liz. Hold on, hold on one second. Yeah. Just one question. The, the priest that's building this, is he God's priest or is he... Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> thinking if is he a Levitical priest or not? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I, it seems like he would be, but I don't know the answer. Okay, because I'm kind of confused because I know the priest and the Levites, they're supposed to be two different people. Is that correct? Because when I hear it, I hear it over and over. Sometimes the priests are one person doing one thing and the Levites are doing something else. Well, yeah, to tell you the truth, I mean, my take on this is it, is it all gets very, very skewed. It's ambiguous in the text because it was ambiguous in reality. The priests of Yahweh were maybe not dedicated priests of Baal or something like that, but there's so much syncretism going on that there aren't hard lines drawn in the text like, hey, this guy was a Levitical priest and was doing the right stuff. Like, you just don't find that in the text. The just, Aaron's not, the, the, his sons are not... Levi's, right? They're priests? Mm, I'd have to think about that for a minute. I, off the top of my head, Chris, the Aaronic priesthood as such goes away fairly soon and is fairly quickly thereafter and, is, and, and, then, it becomes, and then it's just the Levitical priesthood. Okay, because so Aaron, Aaron is I, not a, a Levi. Is, he, is that correct? Because he's different? Oh, I'd have to go back and look. I'm sorry I don't know that off the top okay, of my head. Okay, I, I just... <laughs> okay, I mean, yeah, just for what it's worth, which isn't worth much, uh, I would want to look up these specific questions. I, uh, right this second, I'm, I'm trying, my memory is foggy, and I'm, and I'm trying to think, to the best of my ability, Aaron and his sons... That's like, that's like the initiating thing, but it's handed over to the Levites. And the Levites, there's, I, to my knowledge, there's not this dual priesthood operating throughout the Old Testament. Oh, okay. I'm, again, that's, that's flying from the hip, and I'm not entirely certain. So if you find out something to the contrary, or somebody you know, punches that into Google and finds a great answer, let me know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my understanding. So the question, I think the material question is, are these guys, you know, is this guy in particular, is he a... Levitical priest, and the answer would be, if he is, he's not a very faithful one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's go on. And again, if anybody wants to find out for us, that is, or is able to find out for us the distinction between uh, the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, I'm all ears. Love to have that refreshed in my mind. Um, otherwise, let's simply march along with this very depressing text, because... 
Uriah the priest does exactly what Ahaz wants, and that's exactly what the king of Assyria wants. They actually replace the bronze altar of God. I mean, this is just unthinkable. This was put there by Solomon, you know, and now it's, now it's being replaced. He's going to do some other alterations. And it, it appears that the offerings due to Yahweh are now offered on this false altar to the false god. So that takes us to verse 15. Well, maybe we didn't finish 14. Let's pick up at 14. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house. That, the house is the temple here, obviously. From the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar. And king, so it's moved out of the way, and then something worse is going to happen. A couple other worse things. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering and their drink offering, and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. Okay, so what's that mean? All the worship of Israel instituted by Yahweh is now to be done on this pagan altar to the pagan God. So really this has become a pagan deity. The way they conceive of deities, remember, are regional deities or the deities of the country. We're going to see this come out again. So what's essentially being said here is the God of the king of Assyria reigns here. That's really what's being said. This is already conquered territory, um, even here at the heart of Jerusalem. All right, now even worse um, than the last part of this verse, 15, but the bronze altar, remember that's the altar that God has Solomon construct, the bronze altar, and it's set aside, shall be for me to inquire by. That's code language for divination. So what this probably means is they're going to do sacrifices on here, and they're going to go digging around in the entrails to find to do divination via the entrails of the sacrifice. So, I mean, just horrifically demonic that the altar of God is put aside, the pagan altar is put in, all the offerings that belong to God are going through the pagan altar. Then over on the altar of God is this forbidden practice of divination and the entrails of the sacrifice. So, I mean, like if you asked Satan, what do you want to do? Like, this would be, a, yeah, that's, this would be what he would want. So... That's what's, uh, that's what's going on here. And what is God doing? I mean, from God's purpose, is God powerless to stop all of this? No, precisely as Romans would say, he's simply giving them over to their desires. And he's simply saying, if you want it, have at it. All right, verse 16, then Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the... Cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them. And he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And he covered, and the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now, we don't exactly know what's going on here, uh, to tell you the truth, except for he's doing all these alterations, and this for the king of Assyria is really shorthand in order to worship the God of the king of Assyria. And so the whole house of the Lord is being sort of reconstructed and changed and modified in order to fit the desires of the king of Assyria. That's, in short, what's going on. We can drop down to the to the study notes and have some of this corroborated and fleshed out for us. If we look at the study note on verse 14, of course, in reference to the bronze altar, this was made by Solomon um, at, the, at the beginning of uh, Kings, first Kings. And here as we are, um, you know, in some respects drawing, drawing to a conclusion of the, of the kings of the north, we're seeing this uh, taking place, this disintegration of what Solomon constructed. All right, you have um, 
this study note continued, it lost its place of prominence to the replica of the great altar of the Assyrian god Asher, whose worship the conqueror already had established in the form uh, in the former Syrian capital. So again, where we reign, our God reigns. That's kind of the thing here. And then next study note, as happened under Jeroboam in Israel, that's immediately after the split um, between north and south. Ahaz corrupted and replaced the true worship of Yahweh with false worship. Uriah's complicity, complicity shows the weakness and corruption of the Levitical priesthood. All right, well, there you have it outright, that Uriah is a Levitical priest. Daily sacrifices would now be offered to another god. And then um, maybe just this last study note to help flesh out. Uh, yeah, in regard to the uh, Ahaz dragged the nation into his sin, inquired by the apostate king may have gone so far in desecrating the bronze altar as to use it for examining entrails of sacrificial animals for good or bad omens, a mode of divination used also by the king of Babylon, references Ezekiel 21. However, he may have retained it for inquiring of the Lord, mixing religions as happened in Israel. All right, so there's another possibility. Not good. I mean, hard to think of what could be worse, frankly. All right, well, that takes us through the material of verse 16. Any questions, comments, anything stand out to you? Or are we ready to uh, continue on? Yes, please. Who is it? Um, yeah, one second, if you don't, if you don't mind. Um, Who is it? Do you want me to run the microphone? I'm, I, can do, I can do that. We're, we're eagerly waiting that day when we get the room mics in. Yeah, yeah, that'll be great. So this is to Chris's question. If you turn to, the, so there's th this distinction between the sons of Aaron and Levi. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you turn to Numbers 18, it, it really fleshes this out. And I don't know that this changes a whole lot going forward. Um, so this is during uh, Israel's sojourn in the desert after they've been brought out of captivity in, um, in Egypt. And this is also after Korah's rebellion, too, which is a very significant event in the life of Israel while they were in the desert. So you had priests and uh, the elders of the congregation rebel against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and the earth opened up and swallowed them and their households alive. And this comes after that. So um, starting at verse 1, so the Lord said to Aaron, right, so you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity concerning your priesthood. Right, so Aaron and his sons are going to be the priests here. I think that's, that's the idea. So they're going to be the ones that actually you know, butcher the animals and whatnot and offer the sacrifice. And with you bring your brothers also the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. And this is what's key. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary nor or to the altar, lest they and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting. Right? So the, the Levites themselves would not be off, offering any sacrifices. They would be kind of guarding the priests, actually, so they could do their duty. Right? They are, they are separate in that way. I mean, it's like they're part of the same thing, but they have different functions. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, because yeah. that's the way it comes in Kings. It goes through that saying that over and over. I'm thinking, is there a separate? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Well, I'll have to take that. I have to think on that a little because I knew. I knew that. How, how does this go? All priests are Levites, mm -hmm. but not all Levites are priests. Correct. Because <laughs> not all are descended from Aaron. Even so strictly speaking, it's the descendants of Aaron within the tribe of Levi who Correct. are allowed to be the Levitical priests. Correct. Okay, so that's where. So it's not that it's not that th these. It's not like this priesthood as such disappears. It's just that it becomes known as the Levitical priesthood proper. Yep. 
got it. That's just shorthand for it. Yeah. And that's also why in Jesus's parable. Um, that's also why in Jesus's parable of. Uh, the good, the good Samaritan. You have the priest and the Levite, you know, as two separate, um, you yeah, know, who, who walk on the other side, right? Of so, course, so these yeah. are still. It looks like these are still, even by Jesus's time, they're still two distinct entities in that way, right? It, it, at least in terms of their function. Well, no doubt about that. Yeah. No, no doubt about that. There are Levites that are not priests mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, because there's even women, right? <laughs> that are, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, that's good to know. That's good to know yeah. that that's because the that that's the, the Ohio, connection. It when he comes back, remember they, the distinction, they have some Levites, but they don't have some priests, and they make that argument. And so that's the line of Aaron within the Levites yeah. that, and I'm that are the Levitical this, priesthood and, and proper. And that's yeah. the vicar said. He mm-hmm. kind of answered it for me. I like so. it. All right. Good. We're going to go with that. That sounds, that sounds right. Okay. So then, thank you for that. Uh, verse 17, unless there's anything else, we'll go on to chapter 16, verse 17. And King Ahaz cut off... Oh, yeah, no, we did this. Yeah, he just destroys everything. Where did we stop? We got through 18? Start at 18. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, so we will then certainly return to Hezekiah and Judah. Uh, but now we have um, Hoshea come up again in, ver- in chapter 17, verse 1. Hoshea first emerged in this text back in 1530. Uh, chapter 15, verse 30, and you recall that uh, Hoshea is, you know, thought just, it, it, it's a little dependent upon semantics, but is generally understood to be the last king of Israel and a bit of a puppet king at that. Okay, so chapter 17, verse 1, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land, and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. So a three-year siege on the capital city, and again here you can see how from our modern vantage point, we need to kind of rethink. I mean, we, I remember as a kid watching the fall of Iraq while eating dinner and watching the, do you remember that? And the screens, it was at night and all you could see was the missiles and the flashes. And it was like over in a weekend. And that's not the way ancient wars were fought. So it, just to take the capital city alone three years. But what do we have here? We have Hoshea king of Israel uh, reaching out to Egypt for help and of course Egypt does not come. The study note on verse 4 points this out. According to Assyrian records, Hoshea's conspiracy against Pekah, now he's the king um, he's the king in the, yeah, 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 he's the king of Judah I believe. Let me see where Pekah is again. Yeah, no, he's in Pekah reigns in Israel. This is chapter 15, verse 27. So what's going on here? According to Assyrian records, Hoshea's conspiracy against Pekah succeeded because he accepted support from Tiglath-Pileser. So I'm guessing back in 15 is where we read about this. Yeah, sure enough. 
1530, then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and struck him down and put him to death. All right, the only way he got, got away with this is because Assyria was behind him. When the latter's son, Tiglath-Pileazar's son, Shalmaneser, came to the throne, the Israelite puppet king, which would here be uh, Hoshea, did not remain a tribute-paying vassal for long. Misled by a promise of help from Egypt, which never came, he threw off the Assyrian yoke. Okay, in regard to, you know, he called out to So of Egypt, no pharaoh by that name has been found in Egyptian records. It may represent a transliterated Egyptian common noun meaning vizier. The sentence would then read, he sent messengers to vizier of the king of Egypt, to the vizier of the king of Egypt. Shamanazar lost no time in putting down the insurrection by imprisoning Hoshea. All right. The fall of Israel, chapter 17, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. All right, in verse 7 and following, uh, we get this sweeping summary of what finally led to the demise. Uh, so let's go ahead and hit that. Verse 7, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. So again, we're being explicitly reminded that God saved them from Egypt and now they're reaching back out to Egypt. God was trustworthy, Egypt was not. From under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In other words, when the Lord drove out the people out of the promised land, he did so because of their paganism and wickedness. Now Israel was no different. So God is just. He's the ruler of all nations. Israel's decided to be pagan. They'll be treated as such. Sentence continues, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced, and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every hill and under every green tree. And they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Now, again, we misread this if we see this in some sort of like, all I require you of you is perfect obedience. <laughs> you know, what is what is what is here being spoken, the commandments and my statutes, not only the Ten Commandments, not only the law, not only the ceremonial laws, but the entirety of the sacrificial system and the forgiveness of sins found therein. So it's not just that they turn their back on the Ten Commandments or they weren't perfectly obedient, so they turn their back on the entire system of grace that God had set forth and given them. The temple, the sacrifices, circumcision, all his blessings and benefits that flow from these things, from the temple to the people, this is what they had turned their back on. So when we see that language of the commandments and my statutes um, in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers, we need to think of that whole thing. We need to go back to uh, not only Exodus 20, but then Leviticus, especially to see that fleshed out. Okay, verse 14. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Uh, I mean, certainly could be more broad, but specifically, that might even be the generation that fell in the wilderness. Verse 15, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. 
They went after false idols and became false. What a great line. This is, um, I can't remember which church father first said this. And I think it's, I think it's frankly just a paraphrase of something out of Isaiah. But it's, it's you become what you worship. And it's, it's a really fascinating thing. So, I, I mean, Isaiah uses this language all the time of like, um, in worshiping that which is deaf, you become deaf. In worshiping that which can't speak, you no longer speak. And in worshiping that which is dead, you become dead, and so on, you know. Um, so you become that which you worship. And there's a, such a profound Christian truth. We worship Christ, the Son of God, and in worshiping the Son of God, we become sons of God. Um, conformed into his image. Of course, he is God and we are not, and yet we are given to share in him in intimate unity and communion. And so you are what you worship. We worship he who is life, and so we live, and he who is the word, and so we speak, and hear, and all the rest. In contrast to that, um, well, we worship the one who is the truth, and so we become true. But they went after false idols and became false. What a profound statement, and in keeping with so much of the scriptures. And they followed the nations that were around them. Mm. Again, what, is, what, ails, what ails Christianity in America precisely that we're saying, hey, what's culture doing? Let's do that. Rather than, rather than converting the people to the church, the church is being converted to the pagan people. That's what we see here in America. That's what was going on here in ancient Israel. They followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. So here just an amalgam of all the different kinds of prevalent idolatries that exist. And you can go down to the study notes and see references and previous texts to each one of these things. Um, but all of this is forbidden, um, obviously. Verse 17, and they burned their sons and their daughters. So, I th who was it? Hmm. I think it was Chesterton who said, or and maybe somebody said it before him, but he's like, he's like to, to paraphrase, when you, when you lose your faith in God, it's not that you believe in nothing, it's that you believe in everything. And that's exactly what we see as Israel turns away from the one true God. It's not that they like, okay, cease to believe in any God. It's that they believe in all the gods, right? So that's one of the, that's one of the interesting things. It's not... And turning your back on the true God, it's just that vacuum is filled up with anything and everything. And so it's like, it's like, yeah, we'll have, we'll do some calf worship, we'll do some Asherah worship. Hey, why not get the whole host of heaven? Let's worship the stars. And Baal, yeah, don't want him to be left out. Yahweh too, throw him in there. Um, and that's really, that's really the nature of the worship at Israel at, at its end state here. Um, of course, we talked about uh, the demonic and antichrist nature of the sacrifice of sons and daughters. They burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And of course, as the study note points out, that's shorthand because the tribes of Benjamin and Simeon were more or less absorbed by Judah. And then um, many Levites would have also dwelt there because of the Jerusalem temple. And of course, as we've seen, this is not because Judah merited such special treatment, but simply on account of God's grace and his promises uh, fulfilled in Christ. Verse 19, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, this is a reference, by the way, to the splitting of the two kingdoms. 
They made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. You remember Jeroboam, he brings in the golden calf worship. It's referenced like every other king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. Here, of course, apostasy is in view. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. That is, until the writing of this text. Okay, what we're going to see next week is Assyria resettling Samaria, and we're going to see the birth of the Samaritans. Where did the Samaritans come from? We are about to find out. If you look on page 609 in your Lutheran Study Bible, you'll see a handy map there. And just to orient you a little, when you're, when you're looking at that map, you're going to have to turn your, your Bible reoriented in a in a landscape type setting. Then on the left, you're going to see Israel, right next to the Great Sea. And of course, Judah south of that. You go Megiddo, Joppa, the various towns down to Judah. So now you're seeing Israel, you're seeing Judah. And then what this map in particular wants you to see is surrounding it from the south of Judah all the way around and up north is um, this dotted line. That is the extent of Assyria under, I can never pronounce this name, Ashurbanipal or something like that. And um, what you see with his dates is this is, this is later than the uh, sweeping away of the ten tribes. But this is just showing the fullness of that kingdom, uh, Assyria, when it's at its height. The whole of the ancient world practically is under its thumb. Then what you want to see also next to that dotted line are uh, within the, that dotted line are various arrows. And you can see arrows leading from Israel up to the north. Quite ironically, one points toward Haran. Do you remember who came from Haran? Abraham. So there's a bitter, bitter kind of another one more. I mean, God doesn't let, like, this is not just something he decided to do randomly. I mean, there is bitter, bitter references that takes Israel all the way back to its roots. It's like, it's like, I took your father Abraham out of Haran into the promised land. Now you're going out of the promised land back to Haran, back to paganism. You can also see two other possible routes of Israelite uh, deportation going north and to the east. So Israel is, uh, we're going to see this in spades. There's a deportation. The people are taken out. And then what does Assyria do? Well, in order to get rid of the nationalism of those left behind, they shove in a bunch of foreign peoples into Israel. You're going to go dwell here. What was, what was one of, this is really interesting. I don't mean to get too overtly political, but this is fascinating. What Assyria did in trying to create an expansive one nation called Assyria of all these different nations is when they conquered a people, they'd exile the most intelligent of the people, the upper class. They'd spread them around where they were most needed. And then they'd take people from other nations and they'd mix them all together. Because when you mix them all together, they lose any sense of identity, nationalism, pride. And they just become this mixture. And there's potential for infighting and everything. So really, really interesting. Now, I'm not saying that has anything to do with what we're seeing currently in our political situation here in America, but then again, maybe so. Uh, if you look, I'll point out one more thing. I know we're in our last minute here. I'll point out one more thing. The big arrow, the big arrow that points to Israel. Look, what, look what's inside that arrow. Assyria brought in foreign people who developed an altered worship of God. They became the Samaritans. So pagan people meet with paganized Israelites. They create Samaritans. And then you can see from a Jewish perspective the animosity towards Samaritans. So we'll talk more about Samaritans next week and more about the details of the uh, of the captivity, well, it's more than a captivity, the simply the sweeping away, the annihilation of the ten northern tribes next week. The Lord be with you.